scripture that can be found. Oh, one other thing. If you are a new person to Redeemer, uh, we have a gift for you. Uh, we have coffee mugs out there with coffee that have Redeemer's name on it. We just want to give that to you for coming and being a part of things. Go ahead and uh, you know, fill out your Connect card so we have a record of you coming and uh, grab one of those on us. Okay, our scripture can be found, excuse me, found on the inside of the bulletin and that can be found. Good heavens, somebody tell me the page. Page four, thank you so much. Okay. I think this is uh, installment 98 on my sermon series on the book of Luke. Uh, do you know that the book of Luke sermon series started November 2015? Uh, so I think we're at like 74 something. I, I don't know. It, it'll all be available on an 8 track after it's all done. Luke 20, 41 through 47. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he is his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. The word of the Lord. You might ask, why is Carlos so punchy uh, today? I think it's the NyQuil that I took uh, earlier today. Uh, we have, uh, you know, something's going around our house and I thought, oh, maybe I'm getting it. And so I went to the NyQuil, not realizing there's a DayQuil. I didn't nigh is night, and uh, so I've underestimated the alcoholic content of the NyQuil. Uh, so uh, that's my, uh, my uh, pretense for my silly antics. I underestimated its power. You know, we underestimate a lot of things in life, don't we? Uh, we underestimate the time it takes to get somewhere. And so we're always sort of coming in at the last second, right? We underestimate how much things cost. And, uh, you know, it's not like uh, we get to the end of the month and we're like, what am I going to do with all this money? Jeez, I don't know what to do with all this. We underestimate. Um, we tend to underestimate things. I think this story here in the Bible is a picture of the underestimation of the leaders of Jesus Christ. If you'll remember that the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've all been taking their shots at Jesus. He's in the last week. Uh, it's Wednesday. He is going to be crucified on Friday and he's cleansed the temple. He's been preaching in the temple and the Pharisees and Sadducees and now the, the, the scribes have come out and they've all tried to uh, cut Jesus down either by tricking him. Remember the, the coin, the Roman coin where they tried to get him to commit treason against the Roman Empire. Well, he, he cut them down to size. And then the Sadducees with their resurrection riddle, you know, the woman will marry seven different husbands. Whose husband will she be? And, and he has destroyed their arguments. Everybody has gone away. They've all underestimated Jesus. Our world tends to underestimate Jesus, don't, doesn't it? If, if we believe what the world said, Jesus would have been long gone, a figment of somebody's imagination. Over the centuries, the world has tried to stamp out Jesus. 
or to cut him down at the knees, to deface him. And yet he continues to rise higher and higher. And millions, hundreds of millions would give their lives to him right now if he asked for them. I want to talk a little bit about our hearts and the question, do we underestimate the person of Jesus? You know, there are really three options about Jesus. It was C.S. Lewis that said, Jesus Christ, when we consider him, he can only be two things. He can either be ultimate, of ultimate importance or of no importance. But the one thing he cannot be is moderately important because of the claims that, he's, that he makes about himself. So there are really only three options of who this one, the son of David, is. He's an imposter would be the first. He's just some sort of seditious leader who's trying to uh, trick us. Or he's some sort of prophet or enlightened teacher who gives us some guidance to be sure, but is, takes his place among the pantheon of all the other religious leaders. Or he is almighty God himself, the one who is and was and is to come, the one who always has been. The teachers have underestimated Jesus. And so in this passage, Jesus gives his own response to explain who he is. We must find the true Jesus because to find the true Jesus is to find yourself. To never find him is to ultimately be lost. So we're going to look at three points because I always look at three points. Number one, we're going to look at the teacher's underestimation of Jesus. What was their fatal error? How did they underestimate him? Then number two, we're going to look at who he is. Who Christ actually is. And then finally, number three, we're going to look at who we are to be. For to find the true Jesus is to find ourselves. Well, let's look at this first point here, the teacher's underestimation of Jesus. Jesus asks a question. You know, Jesus asked over 300 questions in the Bible. He was actually asked around 170 questions by people. He only answered three of them. He was the master question asker. And it's kind of strange that Jesus would ask this question. It's really one of the last interactions he has with people. It's the last question he asks out of the 300 questions. What is the significance that the last question he asks would be this one? He said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, a thousand years before, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him the Messiah, the Lord. So how is he also his son? Now we know that the Bible, this is a psalm of Messiahship. Everybody in Israel would have known when someone's reading Psalm 110 that this is from. It's of the Messiah, the one who is to come. The one in which God says to uh, the Lord, sit at my uh, right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Jesus is calling out, well, wait a second. How can they say that Christ is David's son? And yet, in this psalm, David is saying that the Lord, God Almighty, God the Father, says to my Lord, meaning the Messiah, the Christ, how can 
this one be David's Lord and also David's son. Now the people knew that the Christ was the son of David. In fact, in a parallel passage to this one in Matthew, Jesus leads by saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They all responded, the son of David. Now they knew that because multiple times in the Old Testament, it talks about the Christ, the Messiah who is to come, will be the son of David. This all comes from 2 Samuel 7 when God speaks to David. David wants to build a house for Jesus. He wants to build the temple. And, and God says to him, you've shed too much blood. You will not build it. Your son will. But I will raise up a house for you, meaning a dynasty. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It was Isaiah 11.1 1 that said, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. In that day the root of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David, will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. The son of David is the Messiah. In fact, many times when people were talking to Jesus, they gave him the title son of David. Remember the two blind men who were following Jesus in Matthew 9? Oh Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Or the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. They called him the son of David. And you know, the Pharisees didn't dispute this claim. Aside from one interchange they had with Joseph of Arimathea, they did not dispute the fact that he was the son of David. The reason that is, is because the, uh, the temple they kept, uh, lit, uh, 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 what would be the word, meticulous genealogical records. Everybody would bring their child on the seventh day to be circumcised and presented and they would record it because of uh, the possessions and of the land and the inheritance. So it didn't take long for them to look through the records and confirm that yes, in fact, Jesus is the son of David. The question was, of course, which son of David? See, there are many sons of David, right? Jesse had David and David and so on and so on and so on. So there were multiple people from uh, the line of David. That's why Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. Other people went to Bethlehem. He was the son of David. But was he the son of David, just one of many offspring? That's what they said. He wasn't the Messiah. But Jesus is claiming in this question that he's asking people that I am far greater than who you think I am. You think I'm just a son of David, not the Messiah. But the Messiah that you think, people, is so far below who I am. Think of Jesus' claims about who he is and who he was. I love the beginning of the book of John, right? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Not that this Son of God, this uh, David, the Son of David, was the first of creation. But rather it says, in the beginning, he was talking with my son about this. If you 
play the tape back all the way to the beginning, which we can't really do. Before there was a beginning, there was him. If you ever ask people about this who aren't believers or haven't thought this through, you say, well, where, where did the universe come from? Well, it came from the Big Bang. Well, where did the Big Bang come from? Well, it came from another universe that went ahead and created that. Well, where did that universe come from? Well, it happened because there was... Well, where did that come from? See, ultimately, there has to be someone or something that is uncreated, that has always been. And so that's when Jesus, what Jesus was communicating about himself in this question. Remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. I have always been. I am that I am. How about age 12? Jesus is in the temple. His parents can't find him. They finally locate him in the temple and he's speaking to the Pharisees. Everybody's amazed. And they say, why have you treated us like this son? And he said to them, didn't you know I would be in my father's temple? Duh. Right? I have always been. Jesus would forgive sins. And everyone would grumble. Who has authority to forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus would then heal them to say, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, John 17. It's this intimate relationship where we get to listen in on Jesus speaking to his heavenly father. John 17, 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. In other words, Jesus always has been before the stars and the universe, before light itself, there was Christ and His Father and the Holy Spirit. The Bible, by the way, is very clear, even in the Old Testament, about who this one is. Remember Micah 5, but you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from the one, from you one will come forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's always been. But slowly over the course of the ages, the Pharisees belittled and shrank the Messiah to become a political leader, a great battle fighter, someone to free them from the oppression of their external uh, enemies like the Romans. And so these three options of who is this son of David. The Pharisees and teachers said he's an imposter. He's just a man. The people thought different for a while, didn't they? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Here comes our fighter, our political leader. But he's just a man. He's a great man. But he's just a man. But nobody thought he was the son of God. See, depending on what you believe about Jesus is what you believe him for. The people believed he was supposed to be some political leader to set him free and when he didn't, the cheers of Hosanna turned to crucify him. And the world rejected him. The Pharisees rejected him. 
What about us? There's a saying that truth can be denied, but it can't be avoided. I don't know if you've seen these uh, t-shirts that are out there. Not my president. Anybody got one of those? No one would raise their hand, by the way. Not my president. Well, what does that come from? Well, it comes from the people who were the, uh, the staunch Hillary supporters that do not like the fact that Trump is uh, president. Now, if it had gone the other way, there would probably be some Trump supporters wearing the t-shirt, not my president. I'm an equal opportunity disparager, okay? Not my president. What is that essentially saying is, look, I repudiate the results of the election. I refuse to participate or acknowledge this. He's not my president. Well, the problem is because of the Constitution, if he's not your president, you're not an American. One of the prerequisites of being a part of this country is to receive and accept the leadership above you. The fact of saying he's not my president, denying that truth, does not allow you to avoid it. We can make Jesus any place that we want on the chain. But unless it is the truth, denying it does not stop it. And that's why God said through the Holy Spirit, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who rage against him will come to him and be put to shame. We only have three options. But each decision we make has a consequence. If we believe he's an imposter, we will take his place. For there can be only one who is God. Maybe we believe not that he's an imposter, but rather he's a butler. And as such, we won't take his place. We'll simply be his master. And we will tell him what to do, and he will respond and perform for us vanquishing whatever enemies we have in our way. Or we can receive him for who he is. The uncreated one, God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come. Well, who really is he? This brings me to my second point. How he responds to their rejection shows who he really is. I just completed. In fact, right now my house is quite toasty because my masonry furnace, if you know I've been building this soapstone furnace, lit a fire last night, heated up that nice 3,000 pounds of soapstone that is just eminent. It's like the sun in all of its brilliance. I should look like Rex Harrison right now with the suntan from my masonry furnace. I built it. It's mine. I crafted it with my bare hands. Now let me ask you a question. What if after spending a year building this thing, my masonry furnace, which could talk, would say, I don't want to perform for you. 
You're not Lord over me. I can do whatever I want. Now, however, my masonry furnace has no hands and I have a sledgehammer. And so I know the law of the club, okay? Kind of like when we build Legos and we don't like the look or something and we just tear them apart without even thinking of it. Because I'm Lord and Master, in fact, its very existence is owed to me. We're talking about the God of the universe. Do you realize how small I am in comparison to him? And yet the way that Jesus responds to their rejection, he doesn't destroy them right then and there, blow them apart. I mean, what standing do you and I have before the God of the universe? He made us and we are his. He can do with us whatever he likes. We're like dust to him. And yet when we see how the Son of God responds, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I'm so thankful that God is not like me. Right? Capricious and angry and justified in what I do. Now Jesus, who is in the nature of God, came to show that nature. That the Lord of the universe is slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He shows the beauty of who he is, that he's slow to anger, that he marches to the cross despite the rejection of the people. I love how there's a comparison at the end of this where Jesus says after uttering this question that nobody can answer. In fact, they don't answer any more, ask any more questions. He said, beware of the teachers of the law. Watch out for these guys, these scribes, these teachers of the law. Okay, these were the people who were uh, uh, the defenders of the law. The highest of the highest of Israel. And what do we learn about them? They like to walk around in long robes and love the greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. See, to be a teacher of the law, you, would, you could wear this long flowing robe with phylacteries. And literally it was like when you walked through the marketplace, everyone would say to you, Lord, Rabbi, Master, Teacher. Indeed, if you threw a feast, you would want to have one of these guys on your left and on your right in the positions of honor to actually bolster your feast. And if you came to the synagogue, if we came to a synagogue and this was the box where the scrolls would be, where people would take it and read them, everyone would be sitting here, but the teachers of the law would be sitting right here with their backs to the box, looking at you to illustrate that they were the defenders of the law. That's what an important person should do, right? But what about Jesus? It says that there was nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. He didn't look like Jim Caviezel or whatever. He was an ordinary guy, an ordinary Joe. I mean, don't you think the Son of God 
would have come resplendent in beauty and majesty and attractiveness. And yet he didn't. Because it wasn't about adulation and worship. It was about service. It was about giving your life for someone else. They love to be known. They love these teachers of the law to be worshipped and ascribed to. But the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Watch out for these scribes who devour widows' homes and for a pretense make long prayers. They would worm their way into these widows who would care for them and give them their life savings. Wasn't that different from the TV preachers and charlatans, the bad ones? But Jesus didn't come to take. He came to give his life away. He came to show the nature of God and he came to fulfill the promises of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There was no beauty or form of majesty that we should look to him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and the one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him not and considered him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. The beautiful son of God who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant. Why did he do this? He came to go to the cross to make us glorious and beautiful. The destruction of his body, the chastisement for his sin, that which was due to us, he took upon himself that we might be lifted up and raised up. They say it takes a Newton to invent a Newton. Isaac Newton. Who could create such a figure? Is not the very action and life that he showed demonstrate beyond all account that he is the Son of God? And he is gracious to us. By his wounds we are healed. I don't know if you've heard the name James Harrison. He truly is the man with the golden arm. And he's not an NFL quarterback. James Harrison has saved the lives of over 2.2 million people in his lifetime. That is because his blood contains a very rare enzyme that can be used to treat babies dying of rhesus disease. Everybody has a blood, Rh plus or Rh negative. Well, in some cases, a mother who has a child, the mother might have Rh plus and the baby might have Rh negative. And the, babe, the mother will reject the child and that child will die or at the best have uh, brain damage. Well, it was discovered when this man was given blood that he has, he literally is the one in a billion who has the specific enzyme that can be created to reverse the effects of that. 
And at the time when they discovered that, there were thousands of babies dying each year because of rhesus disease. And so they asked him to volunteer to undergo a series of tests to help develop the anti-D vaccine. They insured him for a million dollars. So if he died, his wife would be taken care of. Over the next 56 years, Mr. Harrison has given 1,000 um, uh, blood transfusions as they take his blood and use it in these serums and everything to give to mothers and their children so that they might have life. He's the only one. And we've never heard of him. God became man because it was only his blood who could save. So we must recognize who he is. Not an imposter. Not a great political figure. Not a teacher. But the Messiah. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. We must bow down to him and worship him alone and put him in his rightful place. Not on the top shelf of our deities, our bank account, Jesus, and our American citizenship, but the one who is above all. This leads me to my final point, who we are to be. The scribes made their decision. They were the scribes of Jesus, yet they missed him. Isn't it a neat thing to be intimately connected with the one who created everything? The one who knows the answer to all things. I was telling my kids, I don't know how many quarters are in circulation in the United States of America, but from all of those quarters, they all come from one quarter. The one that was originally struck. The one that is the image of that quarter that all were made in the image of. Jesus is the image of God. He is who we were made from. And when we find him, we find ourselves. In Jeremiah 33, 3, God says, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. I wonder if perhaps the reason we're not living lives of wonder is because we've settled for a lesser Jesus. A Jesus who saves us, sure. A Jesus who gives us a blood transfusion. But we forget that though he became a man, he has always been. And he loved us so much that he got so close that he wanted us to know him. My challenge for you is simply this. We have one life to live. We have one mind to think with. We have one adventure to undergo. There's nothing that will satisfy as deep and as rich and as true as to come before Jesus Christ and to say, I want to know you for who you are. And I'm willing to trade you for everything. I'm willing to abandon what the world says of you, indeed even my preconceived notions of who you are. Blow my mind, 
Jesus. Call to him. And he will tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. To discover Jesus is to discover yourself. Aim for earth, you'll get nothing. Aim for heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in as well. So who do you say the son of David is? An imposter? A great teacher? Or almighty God with skin on? What you believe him for is what you will ask of him. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we so underestimate who you are. When I examine my life, not my words, I see the truth. That I belittle your rightful place in my heart as the true image. God, let me settle for nothing less than to know and worship you and to seek to walk this life in deep communion with you. For you came to seek and save the lost. And you call me brother. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.